Welcome to another inspiring episode of the Health from Zanzi podcast. I'm your host, Dawn Umdu. Today we meet Dr. Makotsu Mwabi, a specialist physician and certified nephrologist. She's a medical doctor who specializes in the diagnosis and treatment of kidney-related diseases or disorders. Her story goes far and beyond the realm of medical treatments. Despite facing challenges in her postgraduate studies and navigating the complexities of being a woman, a mother, and a black African professional in South Africa's medical industry, Dr. Moabi found her true calling in nephrology and transplantation. Dr. Makoto Moabi, it is such a pleasure to have you join me here on Health Form Zanzi. It is great to be able to connect with you, find out more about your work within the healthcare space as a specialist physician and a certified nephrologist. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Dawn. It's wonderful to be a part of this podcast today. Thank you so much. I was referred to you by another guest that we featured on the podcast. So, Doctor, you grew up in Soweto. What was life like? You know, tell us about your upbringing, more about your family, um, and maybe just early childhood and schooling. Yes, I was born and bred in Soweto in Dobsonville. I'm the last child in a family of four children. I've got two sisters, one who has recently passed, and a brother. My parents, both of them are late, but it was a wonderful upbringing, I must say. My father instilled a lot of values that I still cherish to this day, and also resilience, you know, later on in my adult life. And that's basically what pushed me to be where I am today. So that was actually part of my next question. You know, are there any specific experiences or moments from your past that really shaped who you are today? Did you always know that you wanted to be in the healthcare medical space growing up? Initially, I wanted to be an air hostess. I loved it. Around grade 10, I changed my mind when I realized that I'm doing so well in mathematics and accounting. Next, I wanted to become an accountant, but my sister already was an accountant. So I realized that, you know, perhaps let me just try this other field. Initially, I must say, my initial years in the medical field, they were fine up until I graduated. But later on, when I was now a doctor trying to become a specialist, it was quite difficult. I just want to thank people who were around me at that time, because when times were very difficult, they pushed me and they believed in me and helped me to persevere and to become resilient to the end. I must say it was not easy with my postgraduate studies. I had to repeat repeatedly, but resilience pushed me to be where I am today. I mean, you achieved all of this during a very difficult time in our country as well. Graduating from the Medical University of Southern Africa in 1989 at that time, and then you went on to do your master's, obviously qualifying the field that you're working in at the moment. Was there any pushback? During this time of, of you as a woman, as a black woman, stepping into the industry? It was very, very difficult. At the time I was married, being a woman, having a child, it was not easy for the family, but there was just 
a lot of support from my family, from my extended family, my brothers, my sisters. And it wasn't an easy period for me. Also, you know, being a black African woman to push through, there was a lot of discouragement. There was people want to pull you down, people believing that you are a doctor, what more do you want? Why don't you just go and relax and be with your family? But I realized that actually there's more that I want. There's an instance where immediately after qualifying, I was a general practitioner. But after a year, I realized this is not for me. I cannot do it forever. And one day I was in the room consulting and a young boy came. He was about nine years old. And I said to him, what is it that you want to be when you grow up? And he said to me, definitely not a doctor. And I said, why? You know, Why don't you want to become a doctor? And he said to me, be like you, waiting for people who are watching Generation to finish before they come <laughs> and consult. And he said, you're going to be doing this for the rest of your life. And then we'll all come after generations. We know the practice rules at half past six. Generation mm-hmm. finishes at half past six and we'll just push in and yeah. come at the right time. And you'll be irritated for the rest of your life. And I got home and I began to actually chew what this guy had said to me. In a few months, I said to my husband, I need to move on. I need to go and specialize. I knew it was not going to be easy, but I promised myself, whatever I have started, I'm going to finish. So it took me many years. I started my registrar post in 1997. I went back to government or back to leave the practice and go and specialize. It was in 1996 when I went back. I was at Helen Joseph Hospital. Then I applied for a registrar post. I started in 1997 and in 2000, I completed my time. So now I was left with just doing my exams. I wrote, I didn't make it. I wrote again, I didn't make it. And it was a period of like, you know, three years where I was just writing. And in between, my daughter was also born. And I actually named her Tsepiso because Tsepiso means promises. And I believe God's promises that are in his way will be fulfilled in my life. And I clung to the scripture, I clung to the word of God, to prayer. And what actually helped me was also to realize, because in that situation, people will tell you that, you know what, you can't do it. So many have tried this and that they didn't go through. I had to say, fix the mind, because it all starts in the mind. And I had to tell my mind that I know whose I am and that I will pull through. God is with me. He has said in his word, he has promised that whatever we ask, it shall be given to us. That, you know, if we persevere in whatever we're doing, eventually we'll come out much stronger. And it was very difficult, but I said, the Lord is with me and I will finish this race and I will finish strong no matter what. And you did it. (laughs) Yeah, actually, sometimes when they say success is not taking a lift up, it's climbing the stairs. And not many people know the struggles. You know, when you go up front to receive your certificate, your award, your degree, not many people know the struggles that you are going through behind. They only know that this is the person now, they are happy, they are you know, being rewarded for their degree. It's actually a very, very tough road. And my family stood by me. I'm very grateful to have them. That sounds absolutely amazing. I think that kind of support can never be overlooked. 
And when you have it, you, you, it really is a pillar of strength. It's just amazing to hear you talk about them in that way. And just to go through, you know, some of the positions that you've actually held. I mean, you were head of the renal units at Peretong Hospital in Krugersdorp. And then you were acting head of department for internal medicine at the department. So you've done quite a bit of work throughout the industry. Talk us through some of this timeline and some of the work that you're doing in the community, because I think that's also very part of what you do. I was at Laratong from uh, 2016 up until 2021. I was head of the renal unit. My passion with the unit is that I wanted to see as many patients as possible transplanted and also to educate our people about organ donation because not much is being said about it. And when you come to what we call cadaveric organs, that is the organs that you received at near death, that is when someone is, let's say, were involved in a car accident, declared brain dead, you need those organs. If the masses are not educated, the usual response is going to be no. And you'll be surprised at how far this goes because you'll think people who are in the field with you understand this, but they will tell you that according to my culture, you know, nobody goes down without all their organs in their body. They are not going to be recognized by their ancestors, which is if an educated person says that, then you realize that the work is much more deeper. So I realized that there is a gap there. Colleagues don't know much about how much an organ donation can save others. If you have one person donating, let's say they've had a traumatic brain injury and they are pronounced brain dead, you can help eight people out of that one person just through their organs. And then we've got also what we call tissue transplant. That is, we're talking about the heart valves, the cornea of the eye, the skin grafts and all that you can help much more people. So one body can take us far. So if we educate our people, then you know we'll get better results. We also have what we call living donors. That is, if someone close to you says, you know, in a renal failure patient, for instance, that, you know, we don't want you to go through this alone, then they will say, fine, we agree that we'll go through tests and we will donate a kidney to you. In that case, what it becomes something that is planned, a recipient goes through investigations that will deem him or her fit to go for surgery. And the donor as well must go through investigations that will deem that person ready for the transplant. Some are turned down. The younger the person is, the better, because if you've got comorbidities, if you've got underlying hypertension, diabetes, and other stuff, it's basically you don't get a chance to become a living donor. So what I do is for my renal patient, usually on March the 9th, which is World Kidney Day, we organize an outing where we will take our patients together with the family members and a few friends to a place like Botanical Gardens. I was doing this as well at Leratong Hospital, and we will have, there'll be a time out, more like a picnic day, and then we'll just take an hour where we teach them so that, okay, we'll teach them about the medication that they use, why they have to be on that medication, 
And then we'll also teach them about the importance of organ donation. And we allow space for questions. What I like about this is you, you make the patient involved in their, in their journey, in their treatment. And compliance becomes much better. And this is what I do with each and every patient that I see who is diabetic or hypertensive. You know, I explain to them the target organ damage, which is if their condition is not controlled over a period of time, there are certain organs which will collapse. And mainly it will be they can get a stroke, they can have a heart attack or heart failure, and their kidneys can give up. So if they begin to have that controlled right at the beginning, it becomes us against the problem instead of me pushing that you are not taking medication. Why are you not doing this? This will happen to you. And I've had better response. People come and they say, you know, that they are excited. What is my HbA1c if they're diabetic? HbA1c is the blood test that we do to check your overall control over a period of three months. Is your diabetes controlled or not? And we aim at less than 7%. And also that is going to help us in lifestyle modification, in uh, further education, and also in whether we are going to carry on with the medication being oral tablets or we are going to change you to insulin therapy. It becomes exciting when you involve the patient in their management and it becomes us against the problem, not the patient or the doctor against the patient. I think this approach is brilliant, doctor, because I think so often we are not as involved in our awareness of our overall health and well-being. You rely on a doctor, trust a doctor and professional in that way, which is the right thing to do. But I mean, I need to be more aware of how my body is responding and I'm hyper alert on that. So I think that really does help a lot in people's thinking about their own health generally. <laughs> if you come into my practice in Soweto in September, I have a TV and only what is playing is the videos where I was teaching people what is the reason why should you have your blood pressure controlled, why should you have your annual checkups because hypertension is a silent killer. Not everybody knows that they're hypertensive until one day they just drop. The symptoms, headache and dizziness, but not everybody gets that. That is why we always encourage people, especially over the age of 40, to say, go and have the annual check. It's so easy. It takes 10 minutes. Have your blood pressure checked. Have the urine checked. The urine will pick up if there's sugar or if there's any kidney diseases. And that can be addressed early on. Lately, we are seeing younger and younger individuals coming in with hypertension, coming in with end-stage kidney disease. And we actually need to be much more vigilant at this stage. I do a lot of education in churches where, where I'll be asked to, you know, just come and address women or come and address church members about your field, you know, what you do. And I enjoy that because it's more of a preventative treatment and prevention is better than cure. We have a problem of resources in the country. Not everybody gets to be allowed or to make it to dialysis. At the moment, if you don't have medical aid, if you don't dialyze uh, in, uh, privately, there are some guidelines, South African guidelines for kidney dialysis, and it means you have to be transplantable so that you don't own that machine for life, all right? So that one day you can move and somebody else also 
can be assisted. I mean, if you look at what we are facing currently, we are having the incidence of diabetes has gone much higher than it was. We've got more people with the renal disease. And also the issue of lifestyle changes it plays such a big role. If you look at what used to happen with our forefathers, they used to eat right, they used to drink plenty of water, they used to walk, and they would rest. Our lifestyles have changed in the 20th century. I have been sedentary lifestyle, that is we hardly ever walk. We use our cars. When you uh, park at work, there's a lift just next to your car. It takes you up and it brings you down after work. And then when you get home, open the garage with your remote and then you sit on a chair. How many steps have you done for the day? Less than 500. And we don't walk, we don't exercise. The second thing is the type of food that we are eating. And that is the part that I like very much because Nobody said we should have meat in our plate every day. Meat can be substituted by using fish is actually equally good. Beans are good. Legumes are good, you know, as your source of protein. So in your plate, half of your plate should be vegetables. And the method of preparation is also important. Don't use oil. Steam your vegetables. Don't overcook them. And then a quarter should be your protein, which can be beans, and the other quarter should be your starch, which doesn't always have to be pop. You can have a mashed potato as your as your starch. So those are the basic things that we need to get right. The amount of alcohol that people are drinking lately, oh, we need to reduce on that. Smoking as well. Of, uh, something is striking me at the moment because a lot of young people are going into this vaping and into hubbly bubbly. We are seeing a lot of pulmonary thromboembolic diseases from this vaping and from the hubbly bubbly. And I wish to just ask my fellow South Africans, you are going to us a very dangerous road. I have a friend who is in Canada where vaping started before us the site. And she was telling me that actually, at the moment, 18-year-olds are coming with lungs which are finished and they're getting more and more donors from the younger people because their life has come to an end, basically because of the vaping, the ingredients which are there in what they are vaping. And they think it's cool you know, they think this is nice. We can just, you know, it's not cigarette. It's actually much more toxic than cigarette. And I wish to just warn them that it's not necessary and you can have pleasure without without doing the VP. Thanks, Doctor. I think you've given us so much to think about in terms of just general health care and just practice and general health care and lifestyle changes that one can incorporate and be very hypervigilant of and about. And I think that's really a lot more than I expected to get from you today because <laughs> the focus was specifically on your career. But I think you can't really separate the two, your work and everything yes. you're doing is part of what you've been sharing with us. So I really do value that aspect of the conversation. And I think, you know, just what you mentioned earlier again about the perceptions of things like organ donation 
and understanding that that is something that we should kind of start thinking or changing around. I'm an organ donor myself became one my parents were also a little bit hesitant but how do you think you know we kind of start changing that thinking you're already actively doing that work in the community projects that you're running children and with women and with citizens in these communities but what would you say to South Africans in general again just as we start wrapping up the conversation education is very important when the Bible says my people perish because of lack of knowledge is so true And I've seen perceptions changing just from people being educated. And they're like, oh, so we can help so-and-so. We've had uh, non-related organ donors, people saying, I just want to give a kidney to someone, which is just so inspiring. They don't know this person, but they just want to help. And if our hospitals, one of the things that I've just picked up is that even when you look at our own medical professions, immediately when you say organ donation, it's like, yo, there comes a lot of work. It shouldn't actually be like that because all that they have to do is to certify the person brain dead. And you just need two physicians or two doctors. One of them should be more than five years registered with the Health Professional Council of South Africa. And then the other one can be a little junior as long as they're not the intense. And there are tests that are done you know, to pronounce a patient brain dead. And as soon as they confirm that the patient is brain dead, all they do is they call in the transplant team and the transplant team will do the rest. They will talk to the family, they will counsel the family, they will put uh, the patient in an ICU setup. There are certain vitals that have to be measured, make sure the urine output is good, the temperature, the BP is maintained until all the organs are harvested. And it becomes such a joy because organ donation is a gift. So it becomes such a joy when somebody is called at night to say, your gift has arrived, come to the hospital immediately, and they become transplanted. I would urge, you know, well, Kidney Day is coming, and I would urge the media to actually, you know, look into it. The Department of Health, I know they are busy, but there is not much in our government hospitals, even in our private hospitals where people are educated. You know, when patients are sitting, for instance, if they are in an outpatient department and they are waiting to be seen, they can be in one position for more than 30 minutes. And that is where you use pamphlets, posters, to just begin to set this in their mind to say, by the way, this is there. And also when the time comes for them to make the decision with their loved ones, it doesn't become a, a very difficult de- decision because they've already seen, you know, it has been imprinted in their minds already that they can actually use their organs during that period, you know, when there's danger, their organs can be taken and be used as cadaveric organs. If they want to do it when they're still alive, that as well, you know, they can, they can be taken through the process and it's a beautiful thing. It does sound amazing. I'm literally getting goosebumps just like listening to you describe making that phone call and saying to that person, your gift has arrived. And I want to just commend you once again for the work that you're doing. I think throughout you've you've answered so many of my questions, you know, talking about some of the <laughs> challenges that you face in your career and how you overcame that, all about the people in your life, kind of that influenced your journey. 
But as we wrap up, I just want to ask you more about, you know, goals or your aspirations for the future, both personally and professionally. Where do you see yourself in the next five to 10 years? Yeah, I started private practice in 2021 in September. I've realized that I'm not getting any younger, actually getting old with each, with each year. And what is it that I'm going to leave behind for the generations to come? First of all, I'm passionate about teaching, and that's one of the things that I was doing when I was at, at Leratong Hospital. And I believe that whatever I went through, which was difficult, nobody, nobody should ever go through it if you can make it easier for someone. I hope I will have time in the future where I can be able to have such sessions, you know, go and teach undergraduate students, go and prepare postgraduate students. And I've repeatedly also opened my doors to say if anybody needs help, because I think that's also one of the things that we don't do for one another, especially African doctors. You know, with the Indians, you'll always find them together. With the Jews, you'll always find them together and encouraging one another. And I think that is lacking within the African community. The thing of sharing of information, exposure to information, how can I make it without struggling through because I mean the volume of work is so much. So you need somebody who will walk with you, who will take your hand and help you to cross over. It took me long to cross over, but finally I did. But I don't want anybody to go through the same process that I went through. I can shorten that time if the, the people are interested. What I used to do when I was teaching the undergraduate students, especially the ones who studied in Cuba, as soon as they come, they only have four weeks in the block, which is too little to know and learn medicine. So I would immediately give them a tutorial. This is where we start, commitment, hardworking, and I would divide them and say, you, you go and read a section on cardiology, you share with your colleagues. And then I would give them a case on that particular patient, and then they go and Take the book and check what are the symptoms that I must ask for the patient. What is it when I examine? What are the things that I must look at? And then they would present. And then I would give them a summarized cardiovascular examination. The neurology examination was quite uh, taxing, especially for most of them. So I would do it for them. But at the same time, it's um, I don't believe in spoon feeding. You do your share, I do my share. And together, you know, we can push through. For postgraduate as well, you know, that's uh, what I'm looking at. But my passion is I want to write a book. I've been planning this for some time. I wish I had time in my hands. I plan that, you know, next holiday I will do it. But, you know, I've got things that I have captured, my childhood, what motivated me, the things that I experienced as a child and up to my story of resilience and perseverance to make it through. And by the way, I started my registrar time in 1997, as I said, completed in 2000, but only got my exam in 2013. So I had an interruption in the middle where I decided, let me do masters in public health, you know, and uh, look at the disaster management preparedness. And I got my master's, you know, during that time. But even after getting my master's in 2006, there was in 2006, there was that gap in me that said, 
you are not where you are supposed to be. You know, there is still what remains unfinished and I needed to go back and finish it. I want you to write a book about my experiences and how I made it through that I fell so many times. But the important thing is not to stay on the ground when you have fallen, but is to crawl back, to stand up and walk again. Thank you, Dr. Makotsu Mwabe, for your dedication to educating the public about organ donation and increasing transplant rates reflects a commitment to community well-being. Thank you for being a beacon of inspiration. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning into the Health Form Zanzi podcast. Remember, healing encompasses strength, passion and resilience. And Dr. Mabi's story personifies just that. Be sure to subscribe to Health Form Zanzi's podcast so you never miss an episode. Remember, you can also read more about her life by visiting www.healthformzanzi.co.za. From me, Do Numdu, our technical producer, Megan van der Fendt, and the rest of the hashtag Team Health Zanzi. Until next time, stay inspired. <laughs>